Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 149, A Conversation with Betty Dicker. The last week of September is Hereditary Cancer Awareness Month, and so I thought it would be fitting to bring you this episode this week with Betty. Betty found out that she was a BRCA2 mutation carrier when her sister was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010. Betty was 45 when she learned that she was a BRCA2 mutation carrier and at the time underwent risk-reducing surgery to have her ovaries and her fallopian tubes removed. She had also planned on having a bilateral prophylactic mastectomy, but life kept getting in the way and the breast surgery was delayed and postponed for several reasons. In the meantime, she continued on a regular surveillance program, alternating with mammograms and MRIs every six months, given her high risk, but unfortunately was diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ in 2021. At that time, she knew it was time to go ahead with the mastectomy and was planning on a flap for her reconstruction. And as she was undergoing all of her planning and imaging for the flap surgery, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. This came as a shock because there was no history of pancreatic cancer in the family. And typically, even for BRCA mutation carriers, we really only initiate pancreatic cancer screening if people have a family history of pancreatic cancer. Now, researchers are really trying at this time to figure out who should be getting screened for pancreatic cancer, how often, and with which modalities. Betty underwent treatment for pancreatic cancer with chemotherapy and surgery. And in early 2022, she had a bilateral mastectomy and did have the breast reconstruction surgery at this time. On today's episode, she shares her story and she talks a lot about what life is like after her surgeries and her diagnoses, the challenges of survivorship, mental health struggles, experiencing survivor's guilt, genetic testing, and finding her voice and what she's doing now to advocate for herself and the community. This is a really powerful episode, and I know that you will take a lot from it. And so with that, it is my honor to welcome Betty Dicker to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Betty, I am so glad to be here with you and talking. Welcome. Thank you. I love all of your content and I've been a mad consumer of all of the all of these podcasts. So it's uh, an honor to be here. And I think I, I resonate with almost every single podcast person that you've uh, that you've had. It's been so educational and so helpful to me. Um, so thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Can you, let's start just by telling us a little bit about your story. So um, I'm 56 right now, but um, about 13, almost 13 years ago, my sister was diagnosed um, at the age of 50 with, uh, I think it's stage one um, invasive ductal carcinoma. She had a lumpectomy, but in the process, um, so this was about 2010, um, they had BRCA gene genetic testing, um, and it turned out to be positive. Um, so I was tested myself as well as as was my mother and I have two brothers um, that were tested. My father passed away when I was 23, so not from cancer. Um, so that was kind of, we all thought it was my mom for sure. She had had um, melanoma. I had a brother that had melanoma. Her brother had had melanoma. And we just thought, oh yeah, of course, you know, this is where it came from. And lo and behold, she was negative. Um, and I have one brother that was negative and one brother that was positive and myself that was positive. So that really was a, um, a life-changing moment, you know, for obvious reasons and for, um, you know, I had children that were in fifth grade and in eighth grade and, um, maybe wasn't sort of taking care of myself as, a, as I should. And I really used that as like, oh my goodness, I need, I need to get myself into uh, better health. And I really changed, you know, lifestyle, started exercising and ended up loving it. Never in a million years um, did I think I would love weight training. Um, not as much into running at that point, but um, I did love weight training and I, you know, had lost weight um, and just became sort of changed, uh, you know, in terms of our kids, my husband as well. Um, and it was, I was, you know, going along, I did have risk reducing um, surgery at that point, because I was uh, 48, or no, 45, excuse me, um, and had my ovaries and tubes removed at that point, um, certainly was done with childbearing, but that sent me into surgical, you know, menopause. And I think I lasted about eight months. Um, and at that point, it was like, I can't do this anymore. I wasn't sleeping, you know, biting everyone's head off that I could find, you know, kind of thing. And uh, luckily, I was being watched by M Memorial Sloan Kettering um, in, in their surveillance program. And the oncologist there was pretty liberal. My, my husband did a lot of research and, you know, it was like, I think it's okay, you know, for you to be on some HRT. So I, I, I was for many, many years. Um, Fast forward, life's going on. Um, my sister was okay. Um, and again, she had decided to just do a lumpectomy and an aromatase inhibitor. Um, and fast forward, uh, her husband got sick about, well, it's a few years already. He, he had cancer for about two years. He ended up passing away in August of um, 2020. So you have the pandemic and all of that crazy stuff. Um, and, uh, and then a week later, she wasn't feeling great and hadn't been for maybe a month or so. Um, but in and out of the hosp hospital sleep, you know, not eating well, sleeping on a couch and that sort of thing. She ended up being diagnosed with stage four adenocarcinoma of unknown primary. They don't think it was the breast. They couldn't find that it was anywhere. It was everywhere, but it wasn't one specific thing that they could target. Um, and uh, I picked up August 29th of 2020 and left for Dallas um, to be her caretaker. Uh, and I'm a nurse by training obstetrics, but um, 
I got a, a fast learning curve of uh, of med surge and and unfortunately, you know, uh, end stage cancer um, at that you know at that point. And she passed away in December. And I had come back. I was doing my surveillance every six months of mammograms and and MRIs and you know three D mammograms with um, with contrast. You know, so I was on the you know cutting edge of everything that they could possibly be doing. Had a mammogram in December that was said I was fine. Um, and my MRI, I had pushed that off because I was in, in Dallas and with in COVID. And my yearly MRI came up around in March. And uh, lo and behold, I had uh, DCIS. They saw something, took a few weeks to get the the biopsy. And, um, and it turned out to be DCIS. Uh, and that was a huge... A huge blow, even though it's the earliest, you know, form. And well, I knew I was going to have a mastectomy. Um, I had been planning that since I knew that I was BRCA. But you know, life gets in the way. I was gotten so, the rhythm. I, yeah. I have I have a question about that because that's something that you know comes up a lot. How did you feel knowing that you were planning for the mastectomy? And here you are with this diagnosis. You know, was there any? And it, this is a hard question, but was there any? regret about oh thinking why didn't I do this earlier and I'm not saying that in, in a blame way at all but I think that's something that people wanted people internally really struggle with and I think I felt important. like a failure I felt like a failure I was like how could I have let this go so long um knowing that I would have I would have done it 12 years ago um when I first found out um but everyone at that point was like, you know, you have time. Um, you know, my sister wasn't, was diagnosed at 50. I was, you know, 40, 40, 44, 45 at the time. Um, we traveled a lot as a family and um, it always just seemed like there was never like enough time. I did have a friend like a step ahead of me um, just by chance. Mother had passed away from breast cancer and she found out she had the gene and she did a tram flap. Um, and I had never even, you know, heard of that. And so that started getting my mind, you know, going like, oh, there's this, you know, type of mastectomy that doesn't involve implants for myself. I'm one of those people that I kind of just knew. I don't think they spoke about breast implant illness at that point, but with an IUD, with, with, you know, any kind of like, implantable thing inside of me has never really worked well. Um, so I just thought this was like a great thing. If I was going to need to have a mastectomy, I was going to do this type of um, autologous um, tissue transformation. And over the, the course of the years, that that surgery has now, you know, evolved into sparing that abdominal muscle. She had a lot of problems um, because of back pain and core strength and um, impacted her ability, you know, just on a daily basis. So, I, but it was sort of paralysis of, I didn't have a team. I, I had my surveillance team, but I wasn't seeing like a breast surgeon and um, along all of these, these years. So I felt like a deer in headlights, even though again, it was early and I will say memorials, you know, mantra is well if it's if anything happens we find it early and and my mantra was i want to find this before you know i 
anything, you know, happens because I understood like there's, you know, even if you need chemo, like it's not nothing. And even if you need radiation and can be quote unquote cured or no evidence of disease, like there are sequelae from those things. So my whole reason to be was to, to use my knowledge to, to prevent this. And I definitely was just the air out of the balloon just sucked out. I was just, I can't believe that I let it go like this and here we are. Um, and I was in the middle of grieving, I, you know, um, I, my cancer and, you know, story is cannot be extricated from the grief that I was going through from, you know, this just decimation of our family in a matter of, you know, a couple of years just going boom. Um, so I, I do feel for people, you know, it's, and I'm again, like on blogs of BRCA, you know, people with BRCA one and two, there's a BRCA strong, you know, Facebook group um, with Tracy Milgram, who's amazing. There's deep flap support groups, you know, that, that I'm in and the, the doesn't matter, like the age of when somebody finds out, you know, versus, uh, and that decision-making process um, is, you know, everyone is very individual and, and has their reasons for different things. But um, I just found I was blaming myself a lot. Like I couldn't believe that um, even though it, at that moment I thought, OK, I'm getting, you know, let's get our team in order and, and boom, we'll, we'll, we'll get this done. Um, so it's what, much what? easier to say than, than I was even like, oh, my gosh, the whole process of thinking that the removal of the breast was still daunting, but. And kind of walk us through, just walk us through what happened, you know, after that point when you decided to go ahead with the mastectomy. Right. So at that point, my, you know, there was no question. People wanted to say like, let me give you your, uh, I'm like, no, no, no. You know, and with being BRCA to, you know, I got no um, uh, issues with people saying like, yes, you know, have the double mastectomy. And I was like, and I want the deep flap. Um, I, and like, like you have spoken before with people that you feel like you don't have a second, you know, I then scramble to find breast surgeons to find, you know, the best person for the deep. And here I ha I've had all these years to sort of amass this and it always ends up just being like that last second, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, so I ended up finalizing with, you know, with a team actually at NYU Medical Center. Um, and one of the tests that they will do for a deep flap is something called a uh, CT angiogram. So same idea of someone getting an angiogram of their heart to see where the blood vessels and um, how they're working. They will do that for someone's abdomen in preparation for, for the deep flap. So they really ahead of time know where they're going and what, uh, uh, what that. So I had that in April, April 8th. Um, and you know, my chart is a blessing and a curse. Um, so as I'm driving back into my driveway, I get a ding that uh, I get a result and everything looked okay. Uh, artery and vein wise, I wouldn't even know, you know, what they were exactly looking for, but there was a, a very strange um, finding on my, on my pancreas um, where the head of the pancreas was bright, meaning there was blood flow and the, from the body to the tail was dark. Um, 
and I do need to backtrack for one second. For about a two week period in Mar in February, I, I had really painful, like left upper quadrant pain. No idea, you know, why came on like a light switch, like just it was there when you know, not there and then there. And it was slowly getting better. But I did, you know, I was a little gun shy at this point, having just gone through this with my sister. Um, I went to my GI doctor and he's like, you'll probably be fine just taking some, you know, protonics and that kind of thing. But I understand you're a little nervous. We can do an endoscopy and we can you can have, you know, do an abdominal CAT scan. So I said, yes, yes, yes. Um, and I did that even before I found out about the DCIS. But nothing, you know, and an, a regular endoscopy doesn't find these things. And um, a small tumor in the pancreas, I guess, can get missed, you know, in a regular CT scan. So I thought I was okay, you know, at, at that point. And it wasn't gaslighting. Like they they did the test that that one would do if someone has left upper quadrant, you know, pain, but it just didn't quite show. And I was, and it was resolving. So, um, but this test, they're like, that's strange. I call the, the breast surgeon, the, the plastics guy, and they're like, hmm, we've never seen this before, but hey, there's a, you know, new head of the pancreatic cancer center who um, I think you should go see. I ended up having an endoscopic ultrasound and a, um, an abdominal CT scan. And uh, that's when they found a three centimeter, you know, adenocarcinoma of the pancreas. Now, again, pancreatic cancer is one of the cancers that um, is on the list of things to be concerned about with BRCA2, but we didn't have any family history that I knew of at, at the time. Um, so that was never, you know, even in the conversation. And again, like a lot of guilt trip on my own part of like, how did we not know to get screening? But, um, you know, I spoke back to people once I've had this diagnosis and they're like, we probably wouldn't have done, you know, we don't do screening on, you know, people if you don't have a family history. So um, I ended up having, so left turn, forget the breast cancer part, um, had a port put in, seven rounds of chemo, a partial pancreatectomy, um, that was an open um, uh, surgery, and then uh, five more rounds. Um, the good thing with BRCA and pancreatic cancer is that they do find that having that genetic mutation does seem to um, have people uh, respond better to certain types of, uh, um, of chemo therapy, and so, that really determines. And the fact that I knew I was already BRCA led me to, okay, we're starting Fofarinox um, with a platinum-based um, drug. And I honestly will say, you know, besides the first maybe two rounds where I was figuring out percentages and and, and different things, I did okay with that. Um, and it also knocked out the breast cancer because I did go back and have an MRI in the summer and uh, that of 2021 and it was gone. So that really afforded me then the time to go back and research, um, am I at the best spot and place, you know, for this deep flap? I was very concerned now because I had a vertical incision, now having to meet a horizontal incision of, you know, hip to hip. Um, and people do are concerned with healing after chemotherapy and, um, and just deep flap healing in general. So, I did find a new team um, that I have been thrilled with. Not only encompasses, you know, excellent surgical 
um, an ability to like sort of think outside the box in case something that they found, you know, going on inside, but also the emotional side. They, this group has um, one of the only plastic surgery groups that has like a, they call it a patient empowerment program. And again, it's like passing, you know, going forward, you're talking to actual people twice a month that worked with these five docs um, and you can ask anything, you know, and, and that's, you know, sometimes in these situations, um, you know, you see your oncologist, you see your doctors, but sometimes someone actually going going through this uh, can be, re, you know, reassuring. And um, and I did great with, you know, with with that. And now I've had gone back and had two revisions so far and, and, and doing well. So I'm glad I'm glad to hear that it's gone well. I mean, it's definitely been a lot of bumps in the road. You know, and I think to go back to what you were saying um, about pancreatic cancer, you know, there's a lot of research now looking into who we should screen. You know, it is tends to be people with a history of pancreatic cancer, even if you have a BRCA mutation, but a lot of trials going on in different institutions about who should begin screening, how often, with which modalities. So a lot of that is changing and hopefully, you know, we'll have better information and research on that so that we don't miss people, you know, or we can find something, you know, in its earliest stages. I think um, literally maybe right after I was diagnosed in that 2021, 2022, you know, timeframe um, that the wave, the tide has been changing a little bit to get more people knowing they now, anyone diagnosed with pancreatic cancer should get genetic testing. And that's a new thing as well. They don't think they were necessarily doing that. And the difference of, of what that road of chemotherapy makes is just outstanding. You know, um, there are studies in Israel of people walking around stage four pancreatic cancer, but they're BRCA too, and that they've gotten these platinum-based, you know, drugs and now Limparza as a PARP inhibitor as uh, something that they're able to take um, and they're doing well needle is really moving, you know, not as quickly as we would like the, you know, survival rate is still pretty abysmal. Um, and even though it's gotten better, it's still a very low, you know, like 12%, uh, which is very scary, you know, to read in these journals, but, um, but they are moving the needle. Um, and there is something in the, in the city, my surgeon is a, the, the lead of a something called the precede um, study. And it's a, um, observational um, going forward where they, if you are a known genetic, you know, carrier, have a family history, they're more interested in getting people. They draw blood every, you know, couple of six months, a year, and they are doing the every year alternating of a MRI and a um, endoscopic ultrasound. Um, so while there's no test, to say like in a mammogram or um, a breast MRI in terms of we can diagnose you um, beforehand um, or a colonoscopy, there are these things that are detecting at an earlier stage. And what they have definitely proven is that at that earlier stage, you are more able to um, possibly get surgery, which is what they you know, use as their hallmark of, of someone being able to maybe beat this is being a candidate for that. Well, that's, so, that's exactly the same reason why we get MRIs. So colonoscopies are a little different because they can diagnose like very early precancerous polyps. Mammograms will pick up something at its earliest stages. Now, DCIS is kind of a precancerous lesion, but it's still not the same as like a precancerous polyp because it requires treatment. So 
mammograms allow us to pick something up at its early stages, just like an MRI, you know, or an endoscopic ultrasound. Granted, those two are a little bit more invasive and, you know, then. That's why they, they try and alternate these. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. To try, you know, for, for people. And I, I was on a panel for this pre-seed consortium that all these scientists come from all over the country talking about. And it's a very collaborative type of, um, sometimes some of the bigger institutions around, you know, will be like, well, this is our data and this is your data. Um, they're really trying to make this a cohesive thing that everyone can benefit, you know, from. But they like to have um, patients sometimes give their stories because it gives these scientists that are doing all this great and unbelievable work in the lab a face and a story of, of their why. Um, and so that was really moving and powerful to uh, be, be up there explaining, you know. You know yeah, and I, I think that's, I think that's that. important, right? When you're in the lab or just trying to parse through data, you know, knowing that there's people who actually benefit from it can have early diagnosis is really, really important. Um, so tell me a little bit about, you know, you went through all of this, I mean, trauma with your family and your diagnosis and how, you know, how do you come out of that or go through that? You know, where are you now? It's funny. I was going to start out my little uh, synopsis with, I got to tell you that I'm okay, you know, and then I can go with through like everything mm -hmm. that's happening. Um, so yeah, I, I've been struggling, you know, honestly, I have, you know, the best husband and and the most wonderful, you know, kids who's who stepped up. But I, I do step back every so often and be like, wow, like, I'm not sure. I mean, they're in their 20s, you know, and so and I know that I, you know, my father passed away when I was 23. And, I, you know, I never wanted to be like, well, I've gotten through, you know, trauma, you know, so you guys will too. But it's very hard, you know, to talk about. I think everyone tries to be very stoic and you know they don't want to break down in front of me and and my husband doesn't you know is the medical guy so he's the information you know like you're gonna be okay this is how we're how we're doing it but I was struggling and even with and you know we've talked about this before uh, you know that ringing the bell I mean that was like I couldn't wait for surgery I just wanted it out um they did say that chemo would get a little harder after the surgery um and you don't realize that. And, and I was like, Oh, I just want to get this done. And they're like, you know, as many rounds as you can do beforehand. Now I see that that is, you know, definitely the case. But it was it, I, I rang that bell in around the same time that I was starting to see that, wow, survivorship may not be all bells and whistles. And I really hadn't hit me until I did. And that there was there was no relief. <laughs> but I kind of had to sort of put on that face, right? Because everyone's expecting you to ring that bell and be like, you're done, you're done with chemo. Um, and I I sought out, you know, different support groups and I was talking to someone, at, you know, with cancer, I know you've talked about cancercare.org. My my struggles are are intertwined with, with grief and, and the survivorship of cancer. Um, you know, I definitely have survivor's guilt, um, you know, why am I still here? And, and my sister didn't get a chance, you know, uh, to even be, you know, try some of these newfangled things um, that they, you know, that, that they have now. So I, I still struggle with this, but I try my reason to be now. I'm like, if I'm still here, I I've got to find my voice and try and help 
in any possible way, you know, that I, that I can, whether it's fundraising for PanCan, a very great organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's Les Carton, there, you know, there's um, Let's Win uh, on Twitter, um, and these people just trying their best to get the word out, all of these scientists that are studying and studying and studying all of these, you know, all of these things. So I, I'm trying, you know, if different support groups, it's a little... I'm in a little weird position because again, I've, I've done well and I'm no evidence of disease at this moment. Um, and not that many pancreatic patients can, can say that. Um, and I walk in both worlds of the breast cancer world, you know, where DCIS is kind of like, Oh, you know, um, some people will say, Oh, I'm, was able to get through this and I feel badly. I didn't have chemo and I didn't have this. Well, I did, but it wasn't for that. But, you know, um, so, but it's a blessing in a way that I I can walk in in both worlds. And I have met a few people in those both worlds that we've been able to, um, I know that I was able to help someone who just on a deep flap support group, you know, was like, hey, has anyone had pancreatic cancer that had, you know, this? And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, and we've become fast friends. I went to Boston to like see her on her last day of, uh, you know, of chemo. I was just a few months ahead, you know, of, of her. And um, again, I'm a nurse, I'm a lactation consultant and in obstetrics, you know, my love language is kind of giving um, and, and trying to help someone through maybe something that unfortunately I have, you know, been a few steps, you know, ahead. But I think that the BRCA, you know, community needs to get out there and and be helping patients getting into some of these, you know, more uh, programs. And sometimes the smaller community hospitals just aren't equipped, you know, to to find these things or to really know what what are the um, resources that people should be getting. Um, and again, just like in some of the breast um, imaging things that are coming out now that there's not a consensus on exactly ages and different things. Uh, you know, the same thing goes with the pancreatic cancer where um, some people will say is, you know, the BRCA one and two are enough, you know, to put you into a surveillance program and others are still holding true to the um, at least one or two family um, first degree relative, you know, and a BRCA mutation or, so it's hard, you know, and I see this almost every night, you know, on some of these sites and things that are people like, what are you getting done? And what are you getting done? And, oh, this person said this and that. And I've been, you know, when I see that, I try and get on there and, and you know, say, you know, here's this precede study, uh, you know, um, website, you know, put your zip code in, see if there's a, a place near you, at least to have a conversation kills me inside when someone says that I was told I can't have surveillance. And again, that may be true. Um, but could there be a conversation? Could you say like, let's revisit this in a year, maybe by the time you're 50 or, you know, 10 years younger than, than that, that relative, you know, uh, of yours. Um, I know the numbers may not pan out for what they think, you know, should be. Um, but I'm the prime example of benefiting not from the screening per se, but from early detection. And that's really the um, the thing that people need to understand. And even, I, I know people that's parents or, or, you know, have died suddenly from pancreatic cancer and they have no idea. They just assume that there's nothing that they can, you know, that they can do. And um, if there's, you know, a reason that I'm still here, it's to, to say that there are things, um, even just to get the conversation going so that, 
um, maybe in a year or two, maybe there'll be a blood test, you know, they're working on it. Um, they're working, you know, really hard. But if you can get that tumor out before it's wrapped around a vein um, or spread to another, you know, other organs, their survival. And I, I think I just to add to that, that I think pancreatic cancer, you know, there've been a lot of advances and there's more to come. And I think things unfortunately don't move as quickly as we all want them to. It takes time to test new drugs, start clinical trials, analyze the data, make sure it's safe. Um, but there is survivorship, you know, and people do well, even if they do get diagnosed in some cases with locally advanced pancreatic cancer. So I think things are changing. Um, I'm not a pancreatic cancer specialist, um, but I, I think, you know, I think the m most important takeaway point and for this is people listening probably may not have, um, maybe don't have a tie to pancreatic cancer, right? But I think advocating for yourself and, and really making sure that you're talking to your doctors, whoever that, whatever that looks like about your family history and your individual risk and saying, okay, what am I at risk for based on family history? what should be the testing that's done? You know, is there a screening program? You know, maybe my hospital doesn't have this, but how do I get involved in maybe a different screening program, like proceed, you know, right. Yeah. We talked about. So I think kind of taking a bigger, broader picture to this and saying that it's so important to know your family history. And I think sometimes people think of family history as mom or dad and, or, and, you know, brothers and sisters and don't think about, um, aunts and uncles and grandparents. And a lot of times that's where we actually get to pick up some picture of what's happening. So I think really being proactive about knowing about your family history. And if you don't, if people were adopted or they come from a very small family and a lot of Jewish Ashkenazi Jewish families because of the Holocaust are very small, that you may not actually know that bigger family history. And so talking to your doctor about, you know, would I qualify for genetic testing not being afraid to reach out to a genetic counselor. You know, I think I think that information here, like you said, is power. Knowledge is power. Um, and I know it's it's scary, um, but I'd much rather have have something, you know, to do. And again, you you it's not about it not it's not happening or that there's like, you know, there's lifestyle, there's different things that um you want to just put yourself in that best situ you know, situation. And yeah, and especially as, as that sometimes weaves it, its way down through like a male side of, of, of a family that didn't have that. a lot of women mm -hmm. um, or, you know, at that back in the, you know, I had two grandfathers that died from, you know, heart, heart disease. Um, and we were all, you know, my father was a runner. He ran marathons. And, and really tried to be healthy because his father passed away, you know, early in his 50s. But who would have known what what would have been, um, you know, on his side, but his mother didn't die from cancer either, you know, so it's a very bizarre, sometimes yeah. you know, a, a avenue down. But then once you have that information, it it is, although difficult, important, you know, to impart to people, I, I really believe so that you know, people can make their own choices. But what we're finding now is that there's just, there is a lot that, that can be done and just being knowledgeable um, and finding a provider and, and different programs um, is just, you know, so, so helpful. So before we wrap up, you know, what would you say to someone who is maybe afraid to take that next step, whether to get genetic testing or whether to go and have that consultation about the mastectomy or 
the ovarian surgery, you know, what would be as having gone through that, what would you recommend? I think taking the time, you know, to, to amass a, a good group of, of, of docs and physicians and, and, and a place that you feel comfortable. There's no decision that has to be made, you know, within five minutes. Um, and I see some of these very young, you know, um, kids, and I will be dealing with that myself, but it's, it's a lot, you know, and it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot to bear, but yet if you can change your mindset as being that this knowledge is power and I might not need a mastectomy tomorrow, but, um, okay, that's on my horizon, but until then I'm going to do my screenings, you know, uh, you know, up until then, um, you know, figuring out ovarian times of, of removal, um, is very loaded. You're talking about childbearing and, and, you know, um, again, I, I, I was past that, that, that point, but I feel viscerally for these young women that are trying to make these, you know, decisions. But again, you know, there are more choices than, than there were even five or 10 years ago in terms of trying to find embryos that without, you know, without it, or, um, just being on the cusp. So then you're getting an ultrasound maybe every six, you know, every six months that you're, that you're plugging yourself in. Um, I think no decision has to be made, you know, mm-hmm. that, that second, but I, I think getting a place that does this all the time, that, that um, is very aware of, of the different mutations, um, getting that blood work done and having it in a bank that will call you back, you know, in five or 10 years. Oh, you know, this mutation now, uh, you know, exists. Well, that explains a lot, you know, ki- kind of thing. And one day at a time, it, because again, it can be overwhelming. Um, but on the other hand, I, you know, you you take each chunk of, okay, I have to assess my risk. And that's where genetic counseling, you know, those people are just incredibly mm-hmm. smart um, and so helpful to assess someone's risk, you know, based on your family, you know, Again, in all these Facebook groups, you can put out, oh, I'm this and that, but there's so much more to it. You know, when was that person diagnosed? And, you know, was it before 50? Was it after 50? Do you have a little time, you know, to get your your affairs in order of just, you know, what, when does this, you know, need to happen? And and I would put pancreatic cancer on your radar. <laughs> um, that's my, uh, my billboard for the, you know, for the uh-huh. day. Again, it's not something that it's still very rare. Um, but again, in this in in the genetic mutation world, um, it is something to be discussed and to have a plan. I have benefited from that that person ahead of me. You know, whether it was my sister having breast cancer ahead, you know, at age fifty, got me going, and then um, just being on my you know on my toes at that you know at that point, and other family members have have then benefited from my. Um, having this and now they'll be in you know inner surveillance i feel for for everyone and i feel this early um that it these are tough decisions but but they can be made with a combination um it, like i said like i didn't rush into the mastectomy right you know right away i did do the ovarian just begin the typical synopsis mm-hmm. for that is just that there isn't as good a tool to to find mm-hmm. it um, just like pancreatic you know is difficult so that was something i was wanted to do fairly quickly. Now I'm saying, you know, at 54, when I was diagnosed, 
like I, I did have a lot of guilt for not getting something done, you know, sooner. Um, but it saved my life. Uh, and that's also a, a strange conundrum that anytime that thought now goes into my mind of, geez, how did I not do this sooner? Then I say, oh, wait a second. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's a, a good thing for anyone to, <laughs> to oh. go by, but it just, for me, like, I have to say like, wow, like the world is, and the, you know, is just crazy of how that this was found incidentally. Um, and if I hadn't, nothing against any type of reconstruction, but if I had chosen implant reconstruction, I may not have found this. Yeah. Um, I was about to embark on a huge, you know, um, you know, surgery that if I started complaining of anything, I'm sure for a while it would have been like, well, you just had major, you know, um, surgery. So um, sometimes you just have to look up to a higher being maybe and just say like, wow. Um, but I, you know, like to pass it forward and move, you know, um, pay it forward to more people. And um, I'm constantly on on these groups and in, in the pan, you know, pancreatic world and in the breast world of Hey, if you need someone to talk to, there are resources that I've now found, you know, um, can I help you get this and that? I'm That makes me at least feel that I'm, I'm moving forward. Thank you so much for being so vocal and, and sharing your story, because I think the more we can talk about it, you know, even if one person listening says, you know, I'm going to get tested or I'm going to talk to my doctor about getting surgery or testing. I think that that is really powerful. If um, anyone wants to connect with you, how can they do that? My, I'm on Instagram a lot. Um, BT Dicker at BT Dicker. Um, my email is BT Dicker at gmail.com. Love to, you know, connect with anyone that just needs um, a hug or some some resources of you know how someone has gotten through. I I wouldn't say that I've gotten through. <laughs> I have good days um, that feel like I'm moving forward, and then you know I'll, I'll have a dip you know where um, it feels like it's hard to sort of get up in the you know in the morning. So um, I'm right there with with everyone uh, finding finding a way and talking. And um, I actually just did participate in a study at from Memorial studying anxiety, decreasing anxiety through either cognitive behavioral therapy and music therapy. Um, and I was in the arm of the music therapy, um, which is, I said, you know what? It's a new thing for me. Uh, I know how helpful it can, you know, can be for people. And I actually, with the help of a therapist, you know, music person uh, wrote, a, wrote a song like about my sister. Um, and it was uh, difficult for me. Like I don't, that kind of stuff doesn't come naturally, but I felt um, really rewarded and, and, and um, uh, it was a nice way of an outlet of, you know, wanting to reach and still talk to her and, and um, tell her what's going on, you know, in, in the world. So she has a new, I just found out my niece is pregnant again with the, we have been their second grand uh, grandchild. So, uh, um, you know, life, Life does move move forward differently, um, but um, you know, yes. Yeah, so, if anyone, please, you know, feel free to reach out. I've sort of been in all of these different circles at some point or another, and I'm also taking care of an elderly mother that has dementia. Um, so that sandwich, you know, uh, yeah, thing is uh, is definitely is definitely real. So, thank you so much.
Thank you all for listening to this conversation with Betty. One of the things that I always talk about and a point I try to make is I want everyone to undergo a cancer risk assessment. And what do I mean by that? I mean, sitting down with your medical team and going over your family history, and that's more than just one generation, but really looking at your extended family history of cancer, if you have it, talking with your healthcare team about, is there a family history of cancer? Should you get genetic testing? What cancers should you be getting screened for and how often and with which modalities is really important. It's not perfect by any means, but I do think that it is a start. Betty is a cancer survivor, but she is also a previvor. Previvors are people who have a genetic predisposition to cancer or have a strong family history without an identified genetic mutation. Betty talks eloquently about some of the challenges that previvors face, the difficult decisions that they have to make. And it's really important that we give voice to that. But he also shared challenges that come with survivorship and survivor's guilt and mental health. And I think that those, we need to continue to talk about those. You can find Betty on Instagram at BT Dicker. And you can find me at Dr. Japlinski on all social media platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I am always grateful if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review for the show on Apple on Apple Podcasts, as that helps me bring it to new listeners and continue to grow it further. Thank you all for being here, and I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.